Okay, we are picking it up again in Genesis chapter 19. And uh, last week we looked at the first 11 or so verses. And uh, today I want to pick it up in verse 12 and hopefully we'll get down through about verse 26. So we have a great deal of ground to cover. And uh, we'll see whether or not we're actually successful in in doing that. <clears throat> There's really quite a bit of meat in this passage. So, uh, well, Let's go back, uh, kind of glance down through those first 11 verses that we looked at last week and refresh your mind where we are in the story and what we talked about last week. What do you recall that uh, sticks in your mind from last week? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Certainly, the, <clears throat> certainly, the sin of homosexuality was a prominent sin in the city of Sodom and the other cities of the plain there, what we call the Pentapolis. Uh, but it was not the only sin. They had a host of problems uh, that we can identify from other passages in Scripture. So, yeah. What else? Okay. Yeah, we talked about we talked about the decisions Lot had made, compromises he had made, starting back at least 15 years earlier, and uh, and those things tend to add up after a while. And so we found ourselves last week looking at what I described or what I called the most terrible night in Lot's life, and he got there through a series of compromises so we talked about that we're going to talk a little bit more about that of course today the whole story is is interwoven with that theme so what else what kind of a man was Lot he was a righteous man okay it's uh it's not our the first thing that comes to our mind is it when we talk about Lot but uh but he was righteous. And why, why was it important, or why did I suggest last week that it was important that we recognize Lot as a righteous man as this story unfolds? Why don't we just kind of just write him off as a pagan and forget about him? Okay. Okay, he's a, he, he is an important example to us of, of God's mercy and God's compassion and his ability to save the wicked or save the righteous from the wicked. Uh, so that's clearly clearly part of it and that's and that of course is, is how it is used later in Scripture as an example to us of God saving the righteous. Why else? Okay, I'll give you one here. <laughs> one of the things I mentioned last week, and because I think it is important, I want to mention it, is that, is that it's important for us to know that Lot was righteous so that we understand that the kind of mistakes that Lot made are the kinds of mistakes that righteous people can make. That, that Christians do make really terrible mistakes sometimes. And terrible mistakes that have devastating impact on other people. 
Okay? And it is possible for us to do that. If we, if we don't think it's possible for us to do that, we'll read through this whole story of Lot and not learn the lessons from it that we should take away from it personally in our own lives. So it's important to understand that he was righteous. Uh, in order to understand what righteous people are capable of doing when they do not walk closely with their God. Okay? What else? From last week. Yeah, yeah. And and that and if that becomes so much of a habit of his life that we get to that greatest crisis when he's standing outside the door, facing that that perverted and riotous mob outside his door, and 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 he's so accustomed to compromising that he cannot he cannot think sufficiently clearly enough to think what is a righteous thing to do in that situation. And he ends up offering up his daughters. I mean, it's to us, it's unthinkable, you know, what Lot does there outside the door. It's just so absolutely incomprehensible to us. But, but to Lot, he, you know, he just he thought he had no good decisions left, and certainly he did. Uh, one of the things I just mentioned this in just in passing last week, but but he has standing in his living room, although at this point he doesn't know it. He has standing in his living room messengers from the throne room of God. He has standing in his living room creatures who spend their life in the presence of God. And they are there in his living room and he's oblivious to that. And and that's okay. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily expect him to know that at this moment. But... But he had other options than to offer up his daughter. But, but sometimes through compromise, we find ourselves in situations where we think we have no good choices. And oftentimes that's because we've conditioned ourselves through all of our compromises not to see the choices that God does set before us that are right. Now he was trying to defend them and protect them. And they had the capability to call down total destruction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, right. Yeah. But he didn't know it until I think he didn't know it until he brought the angels blinded. Yes. When they did that, yes. that's when you go, oh wow. Yeah, there's something else going on here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. He he was not aware that they were angels until they pull him back inside the house and and strike the men at the door blind. Yeah. Yeah, the daughters didn't know that. And I would suggest, and some commentators do suggest that that's why he did it. I would suggest that if that was his thinking, he knew the offer was pointless in making. There was no point in making the offer if that's what he thought. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, as I said at the end last week, it's a very ugly story and it only gets worse before it gets better. So let's plug on through. There are important lessons for us to learn here. So we'll go on through. Picking up in verse 12. 
It says, Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be joking. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness which you have shown to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be spared. He said to them, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zor. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Okay? Well, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, it's just... We, we read through the story and we read about these two men who we now know are angels and it's very easy to kind of just scoot on by that and not really think about it. But, but it really is a pretty awesome thing when you think about it. When you think about what angels typically do, what they spend their time doing when they're not busy being messengers for the Lord. Okay? But they spend their time in the presence of God worshiping God and looking on His glory. And these two angels have, have left uh, the ivory palaces, so to speak. They have left the presence of God with a message from God and a task or a mission from God and they have come to earth. But here Lot is. He's, he's associating with and he's interacting with these two individuals whom he now knows have come to him from the very presence of God. And it, it really puts his, his, his interaction and his suggestions and his, his, his discussion with them, it really puts it in a different light. He's not just talking to a couple fellows here anymore. 
He's talking to some people who he knows have come to him from the very presence of God and that they are speaking to him God's word and God's message for him and God's warning. So that's the context uh, uh, of this whole thing. And, uh, and he now discovers here in these first couple verses we're looking at, he now discovers what the mission of these two men or these two angels are. Okay, And their mission is what? Okay, to rescue Lot and his family. And what's the second part of their mission? To destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. I should point out, it only discusses Sodom and Gomorrah and this little town of Zor, which is uh, in other places in in Genesis is referred to as Bela, B-E-L-A. Okay, Uh, but you'll remember from our study back in chapter 14 of the War of the Kings, that there were actually five cities in that region that are referred that we I've referred to as the Pentapolis, okay, the five cities, and uh, and so there was Sodom and Gomorrah, and there was this little city of Bela, which becomes called Zor from this point forward, and then there were a couple other cities, and we know from the book of Deuteronomy and from Hosea that that in actuality it was God's intention to destroy all five of those cities, the entire Pentapolis and the valley and the region around them was to be destroyed. But because of what happens here in the passage we're looking at today, one of those cities is spared, but the four other cities are all destroyed. So not only are Sodom and Gomorrah taken out, but these other two cities are taken out as well. And you can see that, uh, as I mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy and in Hosea, that God judged these other cities as well. So there are actually uh, more cities than Sodom and Gomorrah that are involved. Uh, And originally the mission of these angels was to destroy all five of the cities. Okay? And, and that's important for us to understand as we go forward. Something else that we want that we should notice is uh, in, we remember in Abraham's negotiations with God and back in chapter 18, he started out at 50 and he said, Lord, if there are 50 righteous in the city, will you save it? And the Lord said yes. And he goes to 45 and 40 and 30 and 20 and he gets to 10 and he stops. Okay? And, and that prompts us to ask the question, well, how many righteous were there in the city? Obviously, there were not ten because he didn't spare the whole city. Uh, he simply evacuated the righteous that were there. Okay. And the question is, how many righteous were there? Really, the question is, was there anyone righteous besides Lot? And I would suggest to you the answer to that is no. Okay. And I think the evidence of that uh, comes in verse uh, 16 where it says, uh, when, when Lot hesitated, it said, So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters. So how many are being rescued? Four people are being rescued, okay? How many people have the compassion of the Lord on them, according to that verse? Only one. Only Lot. You notice that? It says then, For the compassion of the Lord was upon him. Okay? So, so... The compassion of the Lord that is acting, in, as we'll see next week, in response to Abraham's prayer, Lord, will you treat the righteous like you treat the wicked? And the Lord, basically, by the way he answers Abraham's prayer, saying, no, I won't treat the righteous like I treat the wicked. Okay. Uh, that, that, that God, acting in character, he does not treat the righteous like he treats the wicked, is moving 
to rescue Lot because Lot is righteous and the compassion of the Lord that will not treat the righteous like the wicked is on Lot alone. Singular. Okay. But there's a side benefit to Lot. There is a... uh, And the word I like to use here because it's used in the New Testament. There's a sanctifying influence of Lot's righteousness that extends out from him to the members of his family. Okay? And this is a principle that we'll see uh, uh, several times throughout Scripture. And, and it's explicitly articulated by Paul in 1 Corinthians. You remember the question comes up in Corinthians, if you're married, uh, uh, if you're married to an unbeliever, what should you do? Should you, should you separate from that or whatever? And Paul says no. Because, he says, because the unbelieving mate is sanctified by the believing mate. And, and then he clearly states that the reason for that is for the sake of the children. Okay. So, so we see a principle here, and, and it has to be taken in balance with other things in Scripture, but we see a principle here that there is a sanctifying influence. And when I say sanctifying influence, I don't mean that, that if one person is saved in a family, all the other people are saved. But what I mean by that is that if one person is saved, the others are in some sense set apart. They, they, they receive some benefit from being associated with that righteous person. Okay? And, and so that's what's going on here. Lot's wife clearly is not righteous. And we know that because ultimately she is swept away in the judgment. But we have already established in chapter 18 that the Lord will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. But Lot's wife is swept away with the wicked, so we can assume that she was not righteous. Okay. Now, Lot's daughters, they do escape. Their later behavior that we'll look at next week raises pretty serious questions as to whether or not they're righteous. And, and I personally am inclined to think that they're not, but that's kind of an open question. You may judge it one way or another. But, uh, but the point is, is that, is that there is this sanctifying or setting apart or special benefit that the unsaved or the unrighteous family members of a righteous person receive some benefit from God because of the presence of that righteous person in the family. And I think that's pretty clear throughout Scripture, and you'll see that. And, and, and you've probably seen it even in your own experience and in people you've known in lives that you've been associated with. Now, that needs to be taken, that truth or that reality needs to be taken within the context of all of Scripture and within the context of what Scripture very clearly teaches about the prescription against an unequal yoke. Okay. So, Scripture very clearly, and we've already run into this clear back when we were studying the flood and we discovered that one of the causes of the flood, one of the reasons that it was necessary for God to judge at the flood was that the righteous, the sons of God, were marrying indiscriminately and they were marrying the daughters of men. That is, they were marrying people from the unrighteous line and the ultimate, the end result of that is more and more unrighteous people were born and raised up until ultimately there was only one righteous family left, the family of Noah. And so God saved them and the rest of the world was, was obliterated. So beginning there and then throughout the Scripture, we, we see over and over again this theme or this idea of the importance 
of, of the prescription of Scripture against the unequal yoke. We'll encounter it again here in a few chapters when, when Abraham uh, looks for a wife for Isaac. We'll see it again when it becomes necessary for, for Isaac and Rebekah to find a wife for Jacob. We'll see it again in the, uh, in, in the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness and the very clear prescriptions that he gives to the children of Israel. When you get to the land of promise, you don't intermarry with those people. You, you marry within the righteous line. And then, of course, when we get into the New Testament, Paul is very explicit in the prohibition against marrying outside of the faith of the unequal yoke. And Paul is very explicit. So there are, there are a number of warnings about this importance of, of not marrying outside the faith. Okay? And of marrying believers and marrying in the righteous line. That's an important theme. But that doesn't change the fact that, that there is still this sanctifying influence that happens. And, and one of the reasons for that, I think that God does that, is because there inevitably are going to be unequal yokes. Because, for example, in the New Testament, the situation that, pre, that we see Paul dealing with in the New Testament is that you have people who were, where both spouses were unsaved at one point and then one of them gets saved. Immediately you have an unequal yoke. Now, clearly there's no sin involved there. There's been no disobedience to the Lord there. There's just an unequal yoke, okay? And what God is saying is that when there is an unequal yoke, the righteous person can have this sanctifying influence on the life of others. Now, what many people, the mistake that many young people make when they're, when they're hot to trot and they want to get married and they want to get married to who they want to get married to is they make the mistake of thinking, well, I'm going to have this influence on the unbeliever I marry. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I can, I can influence them. I can see them come to Christ. But one of the lessons we learn from this story of Lot is even though that sanctifying influence was there, that sanctifying benefit was there in the lives of Lot's family, it was up to each individual member of the family to respond to that sanctifying influence. And we see how Lot's wife responded. And she was swept away in the punishment. The point is, you can't count on that sanctifying benefit accomplishing the salvation of the unsaved members. You can't, you can't count that. You, you can't bank on that. Because each individual has a free choice before God to respond to the grace and mercy of God as they choose. And we see how Lot's wife chose to respond to it. Okay. Well, <clears throat> so... The, the point of all that is that Lot alone is righteous and, uh, and that he has, however, this beneficial impact on the lives of others in spite of all these compromises and everything else that's been going on in his life. Now, just by sidelight, let me point out another little uh, tidbit of information here. Notice that the angels, when they address Lot about saving the members of his family... Uh, there in verse 12, it says, Whom else have you here? They're asking a question. And then they suggest. They're making a suggestion. So it's more of the question, really. A son-in-law, your sons and your daughters, and whomever you have in the city. We discover something here about angels. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. Okay? Even though these angels have been sent to rescue Lot and his family, they don't really know the extent of Lot's family there in the city. So they are saying to Lot, 
whom do you have? And they suggest that he may have one son-in-law. Well, in fact, he has two. They suggest he may have two sons. There's no indication that he has any. Okay. So just by, by way of sidelight here, we, we learned something about angels, and this is helpful for us to know, is that they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. And that's particularly important when we think about our great adversary because he's just a fallen angel. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Now, he is wise. He's been around for a long time. He's seen a lot. He knows a lot. He understands a lot. But he's not omniscient. And that, that ought to be comforting to you because a lot of times I think we fall into the trap of thinking that the devil does know everything. Well, he doesn't, okay? And here's an evidence that angels are not omniscient, okay? Well, that's just, uh, I threw that in at no extra charge, okay? Uh, yeah? I don't know if you talked about this. I don't. I wonder why the Lord didn't go on down. I mean, why the Lord even came in the first place? And then when he went on down and he said, I'm going to check out the city, he never even went to the city. He stayed there with Abraham. And I was just thinking about that. Uh, and why he and the angels were going to destroy the city and check it out. One of the warriors showed up. Oh, and, uh, thinking, I mean, his purpose was just to come down and perhaps teach Abraham a lesson. Well, yeah, I, if we assume, as I do, that the two individuals here are angels and that the Lord stayed with Abraham and then where he went after that, we don't know. Uh, if we assume that, which is my assumption based on the text, then yes, it seems to me that his, main, his chief purpose in coming down was to, was to interact with Abraham. Yeah. Uh, but some commentators suggest, because of some of the wording in this text, that there is some sense in which the Lord is actually present here. Okay, and uh, I, I, I don't I don't see that because of the way the whole thing is written. But some commentators think that 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 there is some sense in which either one of these angels is now the Lord, and, and the other one is just an, and one of these persons is the Lord, and the other one is an angel, uh, uh, because it be, because of the way they word things and they say things. So. It is a little ambiguous exactly what's going on here, but I think, uh, to me, it seems fairly clear that these two are angels and where the Lord has gone or what the Lord is doing at this point, I don't know. But clearly, these two are acting in direct submission to God and acting on His behalf and speaking on His behalf. So it's almost as if the Lord Himself were there. Does that answer your question? Or? Uh, I was just thinking, in a sense, what an honor it was that the Lord it's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is wrong. Uh, I do see in chapter eighteen though. In verse 21, the Lord is talking to Abraham. He says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to the outside, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Yeah. So it appears at some point he was going down. It does seem that way, yeah. 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 Exactly, like I say, exactly how all this unfolds is not explicitly clear. Uh, when I read that, I, what I tend to think is that. 
when he says I'm going down, he, he means he is sending his proxies down there, which were the angels. But it may be that what he is saying is that he actually literally was going down. Some suggest that the Lord himself went to Gomorrah and sent his angels to Sodom. Some commentators have suggested that. So, uh, you know, there's several possibilities that are thrown around there. But what, but what is clear is that the Lord has made a point that he is intimately and directly involved in this activity and what's going to happen here. And uh, so whether or not he was actually uh, incarnationally present in Sodom or in Gomorrah, uh, he clearly is present there in the messengers that he has sent. And he is clear, and it's clearly the Lord who is acting here. And that's, that is explicitly clear. So. Celebration at that time. Most people don't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go on. So they give to Lot this warning. They tell him to get his relatives and get out of there. And so, what does Lot do? Pardon? No, before that. Okay, he goes and he talks to his sons-in-law, which I think is an indication that he doesn't have sons because you would think he would have also gone to his sons if he had sons. But there's no mention of any sons. So, But he goes to his sons-in-law. And what does he say to them? Okay, he tells them exactly what he's heard. So the content of Lot's warning to his sons-in-law is exactly what he has heard. The Lord intends to judge this city. What else does he tell them? To get out. Okay. What else does he tell them? What's the first word? Up. Or hurry. Okay. So, however Lot communicated what he communicated, that's not clear. But what is clear is that Lot communicated exactly what he had heard. That God is going to judge this city. And he communicated a sense of urgency. Get out of here now. Hurry. Okay? You don't have time to lollygag around. Okay. Now, that's a pretty serious warning. How do they take it? They thought he was joking. Now, again, we don't know what Lot's demeanor was when he spoke to his sons-in-law. We don't know how he communicated what he communicated. But it is pretty clear he communicated impending judgment, a means of escape, and a sense of urgency. Those three things, right? But his sons-in-law, when they hear it, they think he's just joking. They think he's just jesting. And I'm going, how do you hear what Lot just told you and get joking out of that? And, and without, without wanting at all to excuse the sons-in-law for their inaction at this point, I think one of the things we see here is the long-term effect 
on those we love of compromise. Because what's happening here is Lot is talking to his sons-in-law about important, vital issues of the things of God. But they think he's joking. Now, how could they possibly reach that conclusion that he's joking? I would suggest to you that the reason they think he's joking is because they never have really seen in Lot that he took the things of God seriously. You see that? He has compromised so much in his life. He has given lip service in his life to the things of God. But when push came to shove, so often in his life, not always, as we saw last week, but so often in his life, he gave lip service to the things of God, but when push came to shove, he was always willing to let a little sin slide under the door. Yes, Frank. Said who would marry? Who were to marry his daughter? Who were to marry his daughters? Yes, yeah. They're not. They're not actually married yet. They're they're betrothed, which was regarded as you know you're you're bound, you're obligated, but they weren't yet married. Yes. Okay. So, so we learn one of these. Here's here's what I think we're learning here. One is. Let me say this. I don't think there's any problem with a sense of humor. I like people with a sense of humor. I like to think I have a sense of humor. Some people think it's pretty. Never mind. We won't go there. But, uh, but you know, I like people with a sense of humor. And I like Christians with a sense of humor. And I think there's a place for a sense of humor. But we have to be careful with our sense of humor that we don't communicate an attitude of lightness about the things of God. And I, and I don't think, personally here, I don't think that the problem here with Lot is that he, was, he had such a sense of humor and he was such a joker that they just thought he was joking again. I think really the problem here is what I've already stated, is that they just never really saw in Lot that he was taking God seriously. But they never heard him. I mean, he says the Lord. He says the Lord. He says the Lord. Uh, I try to think in our house and if we don't talk about God on a day-to-day basis then something is serious and suddenly you're talking about God and the kids are like where's this coming from? where's this coming yeah. from? They're, they're just doing it because they're yeah. somebody else you know they're yeah. religious people coming up to visit or something like that and, yeah. and they will not take it seriously yeah. it's not a I grew up a PK. My dad was a preacher. And uh, <laughs> I remember, well, you can really go wrong in a hurry in life. And I remember in the fifth grade, my teacher saying to me one time, Rick, you're just like every other PK I ever knew. <laughs> oh boy, I tell you that cut. But hopefully that changed. I think that changed over the years. But I think she was pretty irritated with me at that moment, you know. But but oftentimes PKs, preachers' kids, missionaries' kids, or whatever, oftentimes they go wrong and they turn against the Lord because. 
in the lives of their parents, they just never saw reality. They saw a lot of talk, but they didn't see reality. And one of the things I always said about my folks and the thing that I appreciated was that that it wasn't just what dad said in the pulpit on Sunday morning. But I actually saw him living it out every day in his life. They were far from perfect and they had all kinds of problems like we all do. But I saw the reality of him struggling to live out in his everyday life what he said from the pulpit. Which made me want to imitate him and made me want to follow in his, his example and still do even though he's now in glory. Okay. But the problem with Lot is he never lived that way. He never lived that way. Well, so that's one problem of this lifestyle of compromise that Lot has lived. The second problem is they wait there through the night. I I gather they're waiting, hoping the sons-in-law will show up. And eventually it becomes clear by sunup that they're not. And so the angels urge Lot. It's that idea of pressing and pushing Lot at this point. They're really working hard on him at this point. And they're saying, get up. Again, they're saying, hurry. Take your wife. Take your two daughters who are here. In other words, take the people who are here. There's no more coming, guy. There's no more coming. And it's the idea that Lot's been waiting and waiting, waiting, hoping his sons-in-law will show up. But of course, they don't show up. And so... So they say, hurry, take your wife, take your daughters and get out of here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now, what Lot doesn't know at this point is that is going to happen because God doesn't treat the righteous the way he treats the wicked. And these angels are commissioned to make sure he doesn't get swept away. But Lot doesn't know that and he's pushing his luck here, so to speak. Okay. And so again, he hesitates. You know, and forgive me, but at this point, you know, we want to just grab Lot by the neck and say, wake up, man. What is wrong with you? But here again, this is an illustration or example of the long term impact in our lives of compromise. Now, I think that one of the reasons, as I just said, I think one of the reasons Lot is hesitating here is because he's kind of hoping his sons-in-law will show up. And I would imagine his daughters are kind of urging him to wait at this point. You know, these are the guys they're going to marry. These are the guys they love. Okay. But what else might be causing Lot to hesitate at this point? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about his wife too. His wife too. It's, it's really interesting. We never hear her name, and and she's almost just mentioned in passing. She's just mentioned in this verse and, and the one about her stopping and hesitating and turning into a pillar. Those are the only verses in the in the passage where she's mentioned. So you wonder about her. But why is Locke hesitating? Well, they're a wealthy family. They don't have time to take Remember what the Lord said? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And, and everything they know is here in Sodom. Everything they have, all is, you know, is, 
his house, his his cattle, his you know, and we know he had a lot of cattle and his herdsmen, his whole business operation. Everything is right here in Sodom and in the valley. Because this was the best place to be. This was the wisest business decision he could make. And so everything was invested here. And the Lord says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so the problem with Lot was that his heart was in the bank of Sodom. Now, it didn't have to be that way. Lot could have been as rich as he, you know, as he was and still not have had his heart in Sodom. And we see that because we see that with Abraham, don't we? Abraham's richer than Lot. Abraham has all kinds of stuff. But what does it tell us about Abraham? That he was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. His real treasure and his real heart was in a city whose architect and builder was God. The problem with Lot is that throughout his last, at least the last 15 years of his life, he's been compromising, he's been compromising, he's been compromising. And whenever it came to a choice of the Lord or my pocketbook, he chose his pocketbook. So when push comes to shove and the crisis is there, Lot's heart is in the bank of Sodom. And he can't pull himself out of the city. But because he's righteous, the compassion of the Lord is upon him and he is literally grabbed by the hand and drugged, kicking and screaming, away from destruction and to salvation. And he is, as Paul said, saved as through fire. And when we finish with the story of Lot, we will find him destitute in a cave in the mountains. I just think of that same verse about Paul. I think it shows the principle here that even though God saved you, He's not taking all your stuff with you. It's required by compromise. Yeah. And so what is Paul's So what is Paul's point? Paul's point is there is a way to make sure your treasure is safe. What is it? How do we make sure our treasure is safe? We put it in heaven. We invest it in heaven. That's what Abraham was doing. He was investing in heaven. So he was willing to live in a tent and wander around like an alien and a stranger in the land of promise. He didn't need a city and he didn't need a house and he didn't need all of yeah, he was, Yeah, he was abundantly wealthy and God blessed him immensely. But that wasn't where his heart was. And here we have Lot who, even though he walked with Abraham and talked with Abraham and he was related to Abraham and he knew all the things about Abraham and he is receiving some of the benefits of Abraham's life and blessing. Even all that's going on, he has missed the point of Abraham's life. And he has invested everything in the bank of Sodom. And he's going to lose it all. And I just wonder how many Christians will I don't know, but I wonder how many Christians will be drugged into heaven, dragging their feet. 
because everything they have is invested here. And the true value, the true value is to live our lives, to hear that one affirmation that will make everything we have suffered and everything we have foregone in this life worth it. When we stand in front of the Lord, when we stand before Him and He looks in our eyes and He says, well done. I can't imagine anything better. I can't imagine anything better. But how many believers, how many Christians, how many righteous people will there be? Will I be one? Who when the time comes and the Lord comes and He's ushering us out, will we be dragging our feet and hesitating and going, but Lord, wait, let me bring or let me... the long-term effect of compromise. Well, so the angels drag them out of the city. Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And they get them outside the city and they say, now get out of here. Escape. Escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Excuse me? Yeah. So immediately, what does Lot the compromiser do? He offers a compromise. He negotiates. He's talking to angels, folks. He's talking to beings who spend most of their time in heaven on their face before the one who dwells in unapproachable light. That's who he's talking to here. And he says, oh no. Wait a minute. Let's think about this. And he starts to negotiate. He is so accustomed to compromise, he's a compulsive compromiser. He's a compulsive negotiator. And he's always trying to think how to get a little bit better deal out of God. So he says, he says, if I do what you say, I'm going to perish. Now, how stupid is it for him to say that? What have these guys just done to rescue him? And then they're going to give him instructions that are going to end up him getting killed? It's just an absolutely stupid thing for him to say. Excuse me, I'm being a little hard on you. I told you we'd beat up on him. I started out this whole session last week telling you how righteous he was. Okay, And I told you I'd do that because I was going to beat up on him for the next couple of weeks. And I'm beating up on him. But he's so like me and he's so like you that we need to see these things, right? So he just compulsively begins to negotiate. And he says... Well, now there's this city over here. It's just a little city. And it's close enough I can flee to it. Would you please let me... Did I tell you it was a little city? Escape there and save my life? You notice how he says that? Now, 
To make a long story short, ultimately what happens is he is given permission to go there and God does spare that little city of Bela, which later becomes called Zor, which means little. Uh, God does spare that city because of the presence in it of one righteous person. <laughs> so what we really see happen here with this little city, a little town of Zor, what we see happen here is exactly what Abraham had been praying for in chapter 18, right? So in essence, Abraham and Lot are asking for the same thing. They're saying, Lord, save the city by the presence of this one person in it, right? So there's some similarity in what they ask, and God does grant the request. But what strikes me is not the similarity of Abraham and Lot's request, but the contrast. What is the basis of Abraham's argument that God save a city the size of Sodom if there are 50 righteous, 45 cities? What is the basis of Abraham's argument? Okay, concern for the righteous... And his argument, his argument is, if there are 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous in the city, it's unthinkable, God, that you would judge it. So the force of Abraham's argument is the power of righteousness. Isn't it? You see that? It's God's concern for righteousness that is the force of Abraham's argument. What is... Lot's argument. It's small, meaning what? What's insignificant? Those, what about them? The sin. You know, Lord, I can understand why you judge Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities, but this is just a little. Did I tell you it was a little city? It's just a little city, Lord. So you can overlook their sin. Lot's argument is the power of righteousness. I mean, Abraham's argument is the power of righteousness. Lot's argument is the insignificance of sin. And now we know where compromise leads. And now we know the root of compromise in Lot's life. The root of compromise in Lot's life was he really didn't think a little bit of sin made much difference. Now, God, in his mercy, grants Lot's request and lets him go to Zor. And he spares the city of Zor. Lot doesn't spend long there, as we'll see next week. He's too scared by now and he ends up leaving. But, but God does spare the city. But the contrast between Abraham and Lot is so striking here. And now we understand the root of Lot's compromise all the way along, don't we? Is that in Lot's mind... A little bit of sin is okay. A little bit of unrighteousness is okay. And we see where it got him. What do you think is the reason? I mean, when I first read it, I think he's okay. He doesn't want to go as far as the mountains. He thinks that's too far and we can't make it. But I don't know if that's the real reason. But he just wants to go back in his comfort zone in another city. Uh, well, I puzzled about that same question. And... And I, and I think there are two possible answers. Scripture doesn't tell us, of course, so we're speculating here. I think, I think one of them, and the commentators pointed out, is just what you said. He likes the urban lifestyle. He likes the comfort of the city. He doesn't want to live like Abraham lives, as a wanderer and a stranger in a land of promise. He just doesn't want to live that way. 
He's not looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. So he wants the comfort of the city, even if it means it's full of all kinds of wicked people. I think that's part of it. The other thing, and maybe I'm reading too much into it here, but I think he may be kind of... What has he lost? He's lost everything, right? I think he may be hoping that if he stays close enough after everything's over, maybe he can get back in and save a few things. Isn't that how we think? So, I don't know the answer. I think the first, the one you gave, I think is probably part of it. Certainly part of it is the one, the one I just, the second thing I mentioned, I think may also be a question. Okay. Two things, I think one of them, I think he's just a negotiator. I'm just a as a kid growing up, it's still about her turning to salt, which is absolutely terrifying to me. I still remember pictures of it. Yeah, <laughs> that woman out there. <laughs> beautiful white statue of salt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, they're all What's my turn around someday? You know, something like that. And I was thinking, why was that particularly terrifying? And I was like, you know, all the terrifying things that happen here, they always happen to the bad guy. It was just a handful of incidents that happened to kind of a good thing. I wonder what it said. <laughs> well, yeah, and 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 those questions, uh, those those questions, uh, uh, I wrestled with too, and 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 uh, in fact, I tend to address them. The problem is we're out of time. So, <laughs> no, uh, no, actually, because that was that's where we're going to go. But I was going to save that till next week so we could give it some fair shake. So next week we'll pick up with Lot's wife, and I also want to answer that. A deal with that very troubling question, which is, why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Because Jesus says, if the things that had been done in Capernaum were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained till today. So there are some troubling questions about Sodom and Gomorrah that we still need to address. We'll pick that up next week and go on with the story. Okay?